1958, the journalist Owen Neeson wrote a series of articles on the Irish Civil War. He titled them The Unspeakable War, calling it a story nobody dared to tell. It's common to hear that those who were active in the revolutionary period, and particularly the Civil War, did not like to speak about it. For many years, it was erased from official memory. History books, school textbooks and memoirs would end with the War of Independence, omitting the bitter conflict that followed. A book recently published by Irish Academic Press challenges the idea that the Civil War was covered in a total blanket of silence and highlights a wealth of published material that reveals a lot about the impact of the war on its participants. The book is called Spiritual Wounds, Trauma, Testimony and the Irish Civil War. The author is Dr. Schaefer Aiken, lecturer at Queen's University Belfast, who joins me now. Schaefer, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thanks very much, Miles. Talk to us, first of all, about this emphasis on unspeakability over the last century, the the notion that there was a, a blanket of silence laid over the Civil War. Yes, yeah, so we hear the word silence a lot in discussions of the Irish Civil War up to the present And when we look at this in in an international framework, we see that it's actually something that comes up in many cases after very catastrophic or very difficult events. There's a sense that these events were too difficult to speak about. And it's also strongly associated with civil wars as well in other contexts. What's interesting, though, is when we go back to look at the, the legacy of the Irish Civil War, we can see the silence is reiterated in pretty much every decade from the 1920s on. Not only that, but the idea of silence actually predates the conflict itself. So even when newspaper coverage was covering the treaty debates and speculating about the idea of civil war breaking out, there's already a sense that civil war is particularly devastating and particularly unspeakable. Um, So what's interesting there is that the idea of unspeakability, it isn't actually a reflection necessarily of the events themselves. It's a reflection of what the historian Guy Biner refers to as pre-memory, that these Civil wars are already viewed through a narrative framework that they're already seen to be particularly devastating, particularly traumatic and particularly unspeakable. So I suppose it's not unique that this would be, um, I suppose, how the civil war was received and understood. But what's remarkable is that even though there's a huge emphasis on silence, there were also a lot of veterans who went out of their way to break the silence. And I suppose the silence is only one part of the story. Um, But. Do you think that the people who went out of their way to break the silence perhaps were the people on the on the Republican side, the anti-treaty side, that you see a little bit more of that than you do of people who were on the free state side? Well, that's an interesting um, question, Miles, because that's something a few people have asked me. Um, and I suppose when I was starting on this research, I was interested in exploring that because the um, anti-treaty Republicans definitely had a much stronger commemorative tradition Many people say that even though they they lost the war, they they won the aftermath, in, in especially in terms of the memory wars afterwards. But what I was interested in is the fact that there are actually really remarkable cases of National Army soldiers who also documented their experiences as well. So it wasn't the case that it was just the anti-treaty side. And even within the anti-treaty side, um, there were a lot of splits, again, and a lot of very um, different opinions and different views on, on the conflict. Um, just in terms of some really interesting testimonies from the the free state side you have a really fascinating novel from 1936 by a dubliner called um, patrick malloy 
And he wrote about his experience through a novel, um, which was called Jacket's Green. And it was actually censored when it was published. So again, we can see there's there's a discomfort around that. Um, and we see these coming up again and again. There's another really fascinating account from the 1970s, again, published in, in the form of, of the, a novel from an officer called Anthony O'Connor, who was in the Free State Army in Athlone. A lot of the testimony that you talk about in the book, and one of the very, really interesting things about the book is that you look in places that historians don't normally look, in literary works, for example. I mean, you mentioned a couple of them there, but there are, you, you have dozens of references in the book to novels, to, to poetry that would be, I think, pretty unfamiliar to a modern audience, very much novels and poetry of their time. Yeah, well, that's it. I suppose I'm a trained historian. Um, I, I approached this from a history background, but I wasn't limiting myself to the, the military archives, even though I, I've worked extensively with them. And what was really remarkable, it was the material that was pushing me in that direction rather than, than me setting out to look there initially. Um, but as you mentioned, a lot of these testimonies are cropping up in places where historians don't traditionally look. So that's why they've been overlooked, as you said, in, in poetry, in short stories, a lot of novels, particularly in the 1930s. In fact, if we look at the amount of novels about the Irish Civil War, there were more autobiographical novels written by combatants than there were first person autobiographies by the end of the 1930s, and particularly in the case of women. And this reflects to, to a number of things. First of all, it was a protective strategy. This was a climate of libel, of censorship. It was also peer pressure and you're naming individuals who are still living. So by using this veil of fiction, these veterans were able to get around some of those pressures. And the other thing is that it was associated with the, the narrative practices at the time. They were used to reading these kind of autobiographical novels, particularly from veterans of the First World War. We can just think of examples like All Quiet and the Western Front. So these were, the, I suppose, the literary models that the, the veterans combatants were used to reading. Uh, one of the people who, one of the, the great writers who emerges from the War of Independence and the Civil War, and he's rather different because he's, he's a Marxist, he's a socialist, which is pretty unusual, is somebody like Pather O'Donnell. To what extent does Pather O'Donnell, who was on the anti-treaty side, does he address his experiences of the Civil War? Yeah, that's a good question. So Pather O'Donnell is included, and he's probably the one, the figure who's included in my book who's been studied the most in a way. So Father O'Donnell was uh, one of the few who wrote a memoir, um, The Gates Flew Open in 1932. Again, a lot of controversy around that, and that was very much written in the context of, of the 1930s and debates in the 1930s, and particularly his, his dissatisfaction with the Catholic Church at that stage. So he's writing about the mistreatment of anti-treaty Republicans by the Catholic Church in the 1930s as part of a contemporary agenda. And I think that's the other thing, just to mention that all of these accounts are reflections on the Irish Civil War, but at particular moments in time and historical moments in time. So they're often a reflection of what's happening when they're written as well, as much as, as what happened um, during the Civil War itself. Um, but Padre O'Donnell is definitely interesting because we could say that his memoir, I suppose, in the, is an example of this redemptive narrative of trauma from the anti-treaty side, where um, suffering is nearly cyclical, that this is only, a, as he says himself, this, this is only a chapter in a much greater struggle, which is the book that will be completed. But when we look then at his fiction, I think the fiction maybe gives a, a different um, idea of the emotional turmoil, maybe, of this period. Um, a remarkable novel is Adrigul, um, which is well out of print from the end of the 1920s. And in this case, we have a family who are suffering from severe poverty in rural Ireland. And they are catering for IRA men on the run in the War of Independence, subsequently in the Civil War. 
and the, the community breaks down in the civil war. And this is not a glamorous picture whatsoever of the civil war and ultimately a story of absolute tragedy and um, the faith of this family who who essentially give up their own um, supplies in order to, to look after IRA men on the run and suffer the consequences. So I think in that case, O'Donnell is interesting because we see the different narratives being presented in different forms. And I think that's something that comes up again and again and again. So many of these veterans had very different ways of addressing the period. They write about um, these experiences from very different vantage points, have different opinions on these events at different points in their careers, in their writing careers. And again, depending on what genre they're looking at. And in, in some cases, that fiction and I suppose the creative aspect of the fiction allows for an emotional truth that maybe they couldn't convey in first person autobiography. And then, you know, we've got some of the of the great novelists of this period of the of the first half, uh, Irish novelists of the first half of the 20th century, Walter Macken, Eilish Stillen. They also write accounts of the of the Civil War, which, uh, you know, in their in terms of their oeuvre tend to be ignored. Yeah, so I, I, I've looked at that elsewhere and um, just to say that the book is very specifically focused on veteran testimony. So those who were who were alive and active during the period. But absolutely, when we come then into the 1950s and 60s, we have Ailish Dillon, we have Walter Mackin. And I think what's fascinating there is that these are historical novelists. They're very much connected to the period. They're the subsequent generation. Their family have revolutionary connections. They're carrying out research, particularly on the Irish Civil War. And what they're doing is they're writing historical novels and they're challenging the professional historians who at the same time during this period were not writing histories of the Civil War. So we can see there that the novelists were actually ahead of the professional historians. And in a way they suffered first. So Ailish Dillon, she actually claimed that by writing the Civil War, it was like that great marker of, of um I suppose, identity for an Irish writer. If you were on the censorship list or if you wrote about the Civil War, it was like being blacklisted. Um, and equally, um, Walter Mackin doesn't get the credit he deserves, um, even though The Scorching Wind, I imagine, it has been read really widely. It's widely available. And I think a lot of people were reading those texts because it was giving them access to a history that maybe they didn't learn in school. Some people did want to talk about it. Now, they might not necessarily have wanted to talk to their families about it, but they did talk to interviewers for the Bureau of Military History witness statements. They weren't supposed to talk about the Civil War. Their contributions were supposed to end with the truce. But, you know, as you'd be aware from reading a number of Bureau of Military History witness statements, many, 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 particularly on the Republican side, uh, it's almost as if they don't let the interviewer turn off the tape recorder. They keep talking. And they talk about the Civil War. I mean, did you come across many examples of that? Absolutely. Well, I think the first thing to say that's interesting is that in a lot of cases, revolutionaries might have been silent about these events to their children, but spoken about it to contemporaries. And I think that's something to think about when we think of the silence, that we might hear of silence, particularly in families. But that's not to say that these people were silent in every context. Um, and the Bureau of Military History is a good example of that. So the Bureau of Military History in a way, when it was established in 1947, it's a very profound example of the discomfort around the legacy of the Irish Civil War and the states. I suppose we could even say refusal to, to address the Civil War. It wasn't included in the dates that were set for the Bureau of Military History. The Bureau of Military History was meant to end with the truce of 1921. But as you say, when we look at the counts, we realise that a number of veterans 
keep going, that they go beyond the uh, dates that were laid out. And then actually within the Bureau, they quietly jettison their 1921 end date um, by the end of the 1940s. And we see then particularly the testimonies and the statements that are gathered from the 1950s that there's more likelihood to have descriptions of the Civil War. That said, there were many who didn't want to write, talk about the Civil War, and they're also quite vocal about that in the Bureau, that they will say that they no longer, they do not want to go any further, that they don't want to address the contentious events of the Civil War. They do not want to talk about Irish and Irish violence on, on this split. But I think even that is quite telling, the fact that people express their desire not to talk about it again um, tells us a lot about the legacy of the conflict. Now, obviously, they're talking to an interviewer. They're talking to somebody uh, who was not involved, who is supposed to be neutral. They're also they're also aware of the fact that this testimony is not going to emerge in their own lifetimes. But to address something that you mentioned, which was the the, the fact of veterans who would talk to their contemporaries, who would talk to people who were involved. I suppose the classic example of that is with with Ernie O'Malley. And even in the title of his book, The Men Will Talk to Me, i.e. the implication being they won't talk to their sons and daughters. They won't talk to, to free staters, but they'll talk to me. Absolutely. Ernie O'Malley is a fantastic example. And I suppose with Ernie O'Malley, again, going back to that idea that many people who live through difficult and traumatic circumstances actually have this desire to revisit and process that experience and if we look at O'Malley we can see that in so many different forms from the the memoirs he also wrote fiction which I'm, I'm working on more at the moment and that hasn't been published yet and um, he also went and carried out his I suppose his own unofficial oral history and traveled across the country in the 1940s and 1950s gathering testimonies from veterans all across the, the country. And in a way, that was him revisiting his own experience in a certain ex- uh, way and, and filling in the gaps of knowledge that he didn't have himself. So absolutely, there is there is that. And the idea that he was able to gather this material, um, again, shows that there was a willingness to speak about it. And again, depending on the person and who could be trusted, to, again, to, to pass on these difficult stories. Um, an interesting couple that you uh, write about, husband and wife, uh, Pardigal Horan and Eileen Dolan, both were interned by the Irish Free State during the Civil War. Both were writers and they take advantage, if you like, of their own skills. They they tell their stories, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Pardigal Horan and Eileen Dolan are really remarkable and remarkable too in that they haven't been picked up at all aside from one article and that's that's what's remarkable about so many of these writings the strengths of the veil of silence the emphasis on silence has occluded so many remarkable writers and remarkable veterans and remarkable projects of remembrance I suppose and so what's interesting here is that they had very interesting personal circumstances they were both Dubliners they were both teenagers when the civil war broke out Porca Horan um, mobilised uh, with the Battle of the Four Courts um, and was interned quite soon afterwards, like a lot of anti-treaty veterans. He was interned then for 18 months. Um, in the case of Eilish Dolan, she was only 15, but she was interned because her mother was ha- was had basically had a safe house and there were weapons that were found by Free State Army soldiers in their house um, in Stony Badder, and she was interned for six months. But both of them were really shook, I suppose, by this profound experience of imprisonment at such a young age. And when O'Horan was in prison, he was particularly unhappy with the way he felt the younger members and probably the Dublin working class volunteers in, in the anti-treaty side were being abused by the hierarchies, 
on the Republican side and essentially sacrificed within within the battle for Dublin. And he was also very upset then about the mistreatment of Republican prisoners by the Catholic Church. And as a result, he he decided when he was released from prison to um, go towards Methodism and he converted to Methodism as part of what he referred to as the spiritual revolution in order to, to heal the wounds of the Civil War. And Eilish Dolan followed him on that spiritual revolution. So they wrote really um, remarkable accounts throughout their lives from various different places, from various different viewpoints about this. And what's interesting is they wrote through all these different genres. So when Parker Horn was in um, um, Gormson, he was actually writing poetry that was being published at the time. Um, but nobody knew he was an anti-treaty prisoner because he didn't write that on the poems that he was writing. But he was, he's using poetry, I suppose, as a, a veiled form of testimony. He then writes a fictionalised, very extensive um, account of the Civil War that's serialised in um, the Methodist mag magazine. He also writes a non-fiction account. He also writes poetry throughout his life. And equally, um, his, his future wife, then Eilish, she writes not only memoirs, two memoirs, she also writes short stories and she also goes on to write novels later on. So we have this remarkable body of writings across numerous genres, which are revisiting, again, this very turbulent time, a time and I suppose an experience that was so difficult for both of them that it, it led to a spiritual revolution, a conversion to Methodism, which also meant a fallout from their families, from their traditional Catholic families who didn't appreciate um, this spiritual revolution. So really remarkable stories, I think. Um, but there's so much evidence to, to to look at and to read and how they try to process these experiences in different ways. Which brings me naturally to your own family. Couldn't talk to somebody called Schiffer Aiken uh, without <laughs> discussing the DNA that you have in the game. Your great grandfather was Frank Aiken. One gets the sense with Frank Aiken that after the death of Liam Lynch, when he becomes the officer commanding um, what the Free State called the Irregulars, that he couldn't end the Civil War quickly enough. To what extent did he, if at all, talk about this uh, with members, with, with family members? Yeah, so um, one of the things I, I tried to address at the end of the book was, I suppose, the influence on, of family history on any kind of academic work. Um, I think we have a tendency in history to pretend that we're totally neutral or removed, and oftentimes we're not. We all have family connections. We all have different connections to this. And I think um, it really is quite remarkable because the Civil War was a very difficult time for Frank Aiken, and it was something that he did not want to address. So even though I'm looking at the silence breakers, he was really a silence enforcer, if you like. He didn't um, give a statement um, to the Bureau of Military History. He didn't even do a proper interview with Ernie O'Malley. Um, there's other examples of people approaching him for interviews. He was highly reticent um, about this period and actually quite disparaging of people he felt who spent too much time writing books and memoirs. So absolutely, it was something that had to be addressed because um, in a way he is at odds with many of the figures that, I, that I've been looking at in, in my book. But the other thing that um, in terms of family history that came up is that as I was working on this project for, for over the course of about four or five years, I discovered a lot of family history that I'd never realized. But all of it really was related to, to the women revolutionaries in my family, some of them who didn't even realize were active. And um, so I was working on coming on emigration, working on the nominal roles. And I see my great aunt, Nellie Stewart, who was there high in the, the coming Man in Passage West in Cork. And even though I'd heard of Nellie growing up all my life, I'd never realized that she'd been coming Man, nor had anyone else in the family. So there's the, these kind of breaks where the women's stories aren't passed on in the same way as the men. And equally, 
fascinating case and and a really quite quite I suppose emotional case was when I was working on the Ernie O'Malley interviews I was doing the transcriptions and um it was actually um Mick O'Hanlon his interview about an escape from the Curragh camp in 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 the end of 1922 anti-treaty republicans who escaped and then they were being harbored in a house in Kildare and there's a reference in the interview to the fact that a girl was shot and I suppose I was doing the footnotes you have to footnote all of these interviews what 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 happened and I was kind of um I suppose shocked by that reference and really intrigued for months in, in terms of who who was this girl who's not mentioned who's not named who was shot and what happened so I went through the death records to see could I find what this is referring to and I found out that this was a young girl called Annie Cardwell, that um, she had been accidentally shot by a, a Republican activist when they were playing, I suppose, in, in the kitchen, that it was a total accident. Not only that, but Annie Cardwell is a first cousin of Frank Aiken. So she's actually my own relation that I came across. And again, that hadn't passed down our side of the family, even though other family, when I asked them subsequently, knew about this. But again, that was obviously something that was too painful to pass on. But I found that I suppose I was stumbling across this family history again and again, that in a way the family history was trespassing on my own work. Um, and that was something that I addressed. And I, I've deliberately included particularly four female revolutionaries in my family whose, whose acti- activism I wasn't aware of before working on this. Interesting because you, I mean, you address obviously the issue of trauma in uh, extensively in the book. Are there major gender dimensions to civil war trauma? Because as usual, when we talk about the civil war, women tend to get written out. Yeah, absolutely. So there's so many ways in which trauma is gendered. I suppose we can talk about it in terms of the occlusion of women Civil wars are so often seen as brother against brother, whereas actually in, in this case, particularly women were very active in the civil war and actually probably more active in the civil war um, than in the previous period. Um, but just going back to understandings of trauma, trauma is tied to gender in, in a lot of ways. The language of trauma didn't exist, okay, is the first thing to say in, in the 1920s. So we have to be quite careful. Um, but what we do see is we see references to nerves, to hysteria, to nervous breakdowns, to shell shock. And there's all of these discourses circulating in the aftermath of the First World War. These are revolutionaries who are all, also reading Freud. That they're very much aware of the psychological legacies of um, wartime experience, even if the, the terminology that we now have wasn't in existence. They had their own terminology and their own very sophisticated ideas. But um, these nervous conditions were seen to be very much something that affected women, but something that affected women biologically anyway. So because of that, women who are presenting with nervous exhaustion, for example, it was seen to be a condition of womanhood rather than a condition of their wartime experiences or their experiences. So it was much more difficult for them to get compensation through the, the medical um, bodies. And it was very difficult for the men as well to get compensation too. And I think part of this, and um, what I've argued anyway, is if we think of the establishment of the new state, it wasn't one of the priorities to emphasize the psychological difficulties that came out of this revolution, this revolution that was meant to be something that was more heroic and that had, had led to the foundation of the state. But if we look to post-war Britain, there was far more emphasis on shell shock and far, far more compensation in post-war Britain. And also in a in a post-colonial context that the emphasis was on these um, valiant and heroic guerrilla war fighters rather than on, on focusing on the difficult um, medical realities and aftermaths of the conflict. And then the other thing is just even in terms of treatment, um, there's a fantastic case well, a really remarkable case 
where we can see how men and women were treated very differently for exhausted nerves. There was a Dublin doctor called um, Dr. Robert Farnan, and um, we have accounts of Michael Collins actually sending his men to um, Dr. Farnan, who would have been involved in the squad. So anyone who was low in health apparently was sent to him. And he was a ladies doctor, a gynecologist by profession. And again, this ties into the idea that nervous conditions were associated with the female body. But because he was a gynecologist, he, he was looking after these men who were ill, who were low in health. And according to the statements we have, he was known to cure the men by merely speaking to them. So there's a sense that he spoke to the men. He was able to to get them, I suppose, to, to control their emotions again and enable them to continue. And um, particularly in this context of conflict, that they were able to re-enter the conflict zone. But then we see his treatment of female revolutionaries it's very different so the women are usually given these rest-based therapies they're advised to take extended leave from the stressful environment often from six weeks to six months sent to Malahide to the seaside to be outside in the open air as a way I suppose of regaining their health and we see that again these kind of climate treatments as well of going to, to sunny places but ultimately what we have here is men's treatment is about quick recovery and re-entry to the war zone and also to the, the workplace, whereas women's treatment is actually precluding them from public life. It is, is it is setting them aside from public life. So there's a huge amount of, I suppose, of discourses, not only in, in terms of memory, but also if we break down the medical context as well. Um, and also tied again to um, ideas of class as well as gender. Who could afford to go to somebody to treat them for nervous exhaustion? That definitely wasn't something that a lot of people could afford at this time. The book is called Spiritual Wounds, Trauma, Testimony and the Irish Civil War. It's published by Irish Academic Press. The author is my guest, Shifra Aiken. Shifra, many thanks for joining us this evening. Thanks so much, Miles.